0: Welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, joined as always by former USC quarterback and current analyst, Max Brown, who is also our analyst for the 2019 football season. And we're gonna get into USC's first road game this weekend at BYU, but we gotta start at the top with the news of the week, or should I say the latest news of the week, because it seems like every couple of days there's more news of the week. But the latest news of the week came Wednesday morning when sophomore wide receiver Devin Williams put his name in the transfer portal just two games into the season. Max, how surprised were you when you saw that?
1: Yeah, it works both ways. I think uh, you're surprised anytime a guy leaves or puts his name in the transfer portal, uh to this day, I still don't even like know the exact different uh, kind of what exactly that means. Put it in the transfer portal versus officially transferring and whatnot. But either way, anytime a guy goes in there, uh, week th- three, I guess it is um, definitely a head scratcher. But I'll say this: I was intrigued with how engaged he would be after his week one workload, and I tweeted this out. Uh, I actually watched who ran out of the tunnel, and I was intrigued to see how he was going to operate. Him. And from what I saw. Yeah. From what I saw, he was the last dude out of the tunnel. No, no, not not second to last, not third to last, like literally the last dude out of the tunnel, which sometimes that's guy's thing. They, they are low-key. Um, it could have been uh, Elijah Griffin, and maybe I just missed it. But, I mean, he was the last guy out of the tunnel. So I remember thinking right then, uh, hey, he, th- this guy might be uh, n- not, not the happiest of campers. So I think when the news hap- happened, I wasn't surprised, I guess you could say. I was more just... Uh, wasn't surprised with the ultimate decision. Was surprised with the timing, uh, but I think it's a, I think it's a big loss for SC when you talk about moving into twenty twenty and beyond. Uh, I mean, obviously a special playmaker. So that's kind of where I netted out with uh, with this deal. What about you?
0: Yeah, I'll get into my reaction here, but I think you raised a good point. If people are still confused about the transfer portal and what it means, so basically it it just made it very easy much much easier for kids to. Uh, let everyone know that they're looking for a new place and to be contacted. And basically, if a player is disgruntled or just has to leave for some reason and they they tell their current school, I want to enter the portal, the school has to put them in there within a few days. And every school in the country has access to this transfer portal, and most coaching staffs now have someone dedicated to checking it every day. It's, it's not the most organized thing. It's just a database of names, and it's not – it's not broken down by position or this and that. It's just kind of a, a hodgepodge of names, and it changes every day, or not every day, but it changes frequently. So schools are constantly monitoring this, and once a player's in the portal, they're not definitely leaving, but it means that any, any other school can now contact them freely, and it just really ignites the the transfer process. Now, of course, with USC, we've seen a lot of guys go in and come back out. Hunter Eccles, the outside linebacker, flirted with the thought of leaving Back last winter, Greg Johnson was in the portal for a couple days before spring practice and I think missed the first spring practice because of that. He came back. Obviously, quarterback Matt Fink and receiver Valus Jones were in there for longer, about a couple months each, before coming back in the summer so it's not necessarily a done deal at all times that that, that's
1: that's where uh that's where my confusion lies in the intent so oh i'm entering the transfer portal is it an experimental test the waters matt fink style or is it a screw this i'm out of here and so i guess that's where i never know kind of the nitty-gritty of it but um yeah no interesting situation nonetheless
0: yeah, and every coach has a different approach to it. This is one of the main topics at Pac-12 Media Day back in July, and some coaches like Utah's Kyle Whittingham said it's it's uh, there's no gray area. If you enter the portal, you are done with this program, your scholarship is not waiting for you, it's gone, you've made a final decision. Clay Helton's been on the complete opposite end of that spectrum where he said it's a case-by-case basis sometimes kids need time to think about things and he evaluates them independently and in some cases there is that room to return and in others there's not I think with Devin Williams there's definitely room to return because this as you mentioned is a big loss for them and I, I just I don't understand it so, so we're going to get into all the all the factors here Devin Williams was a very highly coveted four-star prospect in the 2018 class didn't really play much of the all last season got one spot start when Michael Pittman was out versus Oregon State had three catches for 77 yards had a long touchdown catch pretty much validated or proved everything that everyone thought about his potential but he only had one other catch the whole season so it's really been about potential with this guy the whole time And you know he he got a lot of buzz in spring. He got a lot of buzz in 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 the preseason because he's a six foot four physical mismatch for most guys. He's fast. He's strong. He's tall. He's a great playmaker, especially in the red zone. So us in the media uh, were naturally kind of hyping him up because it was hard not to be impressed. Now he does also drop passes now and then in practice, and he's been the first to admit that he had to work on his focus and. Um, his maturity coming up as freshman season. That was a main directive from the coaching staff. He had to take football more seriously. So we don't know if those factors are playing into this at all. But what we do know is that through the first two games, he didn't play in the opener, and then he got one, t- one catch for 11 yards against Stanford and played 10 snaps. So that's where this is coming from, and it seems like a rash decision to me.
1: Yeah, it's crazy to think. I mean, him... Transferring could ultimately be a byproduct of a Michael Pittman not leaving early or a Tyler Vaughn's not leaving early. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's a it's a crazy. I mean, interesting dynamic. I think uh, rash decision a little bit, but then again, like you never know what's being said behind the scenes. If they're saying, "Yo, you're gonna have a big year this year, a big role in this offense this season," and that did not come to fruition weeks one and weeks two, and he's saying, "Yo, I'm doing what I need to do." Like you're saying this all off season. Then I understand the frustration. But by and large, I mean, to an extent, you know exactly what you're getting into when you could like Tyler Mons and Michael Pittman were on this roster when he was a recruit. And you knew the trajectory of those guys. Amin Ross Sam Brown comes in slightly different position being a slot guy. But like you're always going to have good guys. It's just too bad because I think his time would have come what uh, it would have come later on in his career and he could have still had an unbelievable USC career.
0: I think his time might have still come this season uh, for, for two reasons. So the, the first game, we were all surprised at the lack of receiver rotation. And Graham Harrell seemed to even acknowledge that, that he kind of let the, his top three receivers decide when they came out, when they were tired, and they didn't come out. Just the way the game flow came. And I, I think he he kind of acknowledged that I've got to do a better job of making sure that there's rotation and giving those guys rest. And we did see it this last week. We saw Drake London have a big game. Of course, that was a product of going with more four-wide sets than they did the first week. We saw Muneer McLean make his debut. We saw... Devin Williams get in for those 10 snaps. But they only played 61 offensive plays against Stanford. And that that might be the low total they have all season offensively. This offense is not designed to play just 61 snaps. So he got 10 snaps in that setting. Well, how about games when they have 85 or 90 plays in a game? He, he, he may have a substantial role. And then if there's any injury, he would be the guy to step up on the outside and fill that void.
1: Yeah. I agree with your second point. I I disagree on the first one. I mean, you talk about – I mean, so we had 60 plays that game or whatever, and he had 10 plays there. You equate that. So, like, let's say 120 plays in a game, which is a ton. That's still only 20. I mean, there was rotation, but even then, like, the one series he was in – They still, they they took him out uh, to get Pittman in there for a specific concept I'm sure they had drawn up. So to your point, I think it would have had to take an an injury for him to really have a significant role because for the first two games, I mean, yeah, you had some of those other true freshmen getting in there, but that's a byproduct of if you look at Valus Jones' snaps, his snaps are down from week one or week two. So it was just kind of a a replace there. Um, But that whole rotation dynamic, I mean, Ryan, we talked about it last week, like, it'll be interesting to see how they how they handle that because right now there's not that much rotation which that which the uh usc staff was kind of preaching all year long we're gonna rotate we're gonna rotate eight eight guys yes we've seen eight bodies in bits and pieces but it hasn't been the, the full-on rotation that i was expecting um on, on my end at least
0: that's that's a fair point you, you make you make a fair counter to my statement there and i definitely understand his frustration. I guess more so I don't understand the timing. Because, again, he's not going to go somewhere else and play this year. Okay, So if he's truly going to leave this program, he's wiping out the rest of this year. And so you're looking at, at 2020. Well, let's look at it from the USC standpoint first. Michael Pittman's gone after this year. Tyler Vaughn has to make a decision. He may be gone. He may come back. But either way, Stephen Williams is the logical candidate to replace Michael Pittman and step into a premier role in a pass-happy offense next year. So where is he going to find a better 2020 situation than that? Then you factor in the eligibility implications. And this is where things get really uh, muddy and, and it's it's hard to, to sort through all the NCAA rules and layers. I talked to an NCAA rep yesterday just about in-season transfers and when the kid's going to be eligible. And they said that player would have to be enrolled at his new school within the first 12 days of that academic semester for that then to count as his year in residency that he has to sit out before he can play again. Well, most schools are beyond their first 12 days of their academic semester. Maybe not all. I I don't know every school's uh, academic calendar. Quarter schools, yeah. Yeah. Now, the other option is is the Blake Barnett uh, 242 loophole. He was the former Alabama quarterback who lost his starting job to Jalen Hurts and left Bama after I think it was the fourth game of that season, whatever year that was, 2016, 17 but whatever it was. He he then immediately enrolled at a junior college out here in California, Palomar Junior College, and passed all his credits he needed to pass and was going to be eligible to play four weeks into the next season at Arizona State, but he petitioned the NCAA for immediate eligibility. For the life of me, I can't find an explanation as to what the cause was that it was granted, but it was granted. So he he then played immediately at the start of the next season for Arizona State, later transferred again to USF. That's beside the point. But but that's kind of the picture Devin Williams is looking at, and I don't see a scenario where he ends up in a better spot than replacing Michael Pittman in this offense next year.
1: Yeah, and you went through that whole, uh, I agree with everything you're saying, and you didn't even mention the fact that Keaton Slovis could be, I mean, he could be a household name. I mean, we're really getting ahead of ourselves with this one, but you talk about a sophomore Keaton Slovis, or even if it's a JT Daniels, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast conversation, but he's going to have someone to throw him the rock for sure next year. So you talk about finding a better 2020 scenario for himself, if that's what he's looking for. Um, He's going to be hard-pressed to find that, and I mean, diving in even deeper, like I've never heard anyone say a bad word about Kerry Colbert. You get most people that are fan, like in terms of players, that are, are most guys are fans of Clay Helton. Like in, in terms of the the behind the th- the behind the scenes stuff that could be could be going on, it's uh, it's hard to piece together uh, a, a right reason for him to transfer. And you
0: know. It, it, Here's another misconception that I've been hearing a lot. You know, he he saw Drake London get 44 snaps or whatever it was and and have a big game. Well, they're not playing the same position. And the way USC has set things up this year is that they have a guy behind each guy, and it's pretty clear. And Devin Williams just happens to be the guy behind Michael Pittman. Munir McLean is the guy behind Tyler Vaughn's, and so on. And from what I can tell, it looks like Drake London, who has moved inside – before the season started as an inside receiver. Uh, On their depth chart, they call it the the A receiver, which is the fourth receiver in this offense. They didn't really use it much in the first game. They used it a lot in the second game. And I think he's kind of usurped Bayless Jones at that spot. But he and Devin Williams weren't competing for snaps. They, they, They don't play the same position. And that's not to say that Devin Williams couldn't be functional as an inside receiver. But that's just the determination the staff made that that's where he was. He's in their outside receiver rotation. So those things are apples and oranges. The element that I was going back and forth with
1: someone on Twitter about is, so I'm with you that he's not a slot, but I mean in terms of like, it's kind of the offensive line mentality, right? Get your best five on the offensive line. Figure it out. Like one of those things. The lineup, so let's say if, if you're saying if you're Clay Helton, and you're saying Devin Williams is a is an outside guy. I've plugged him in as an outside guy. He is not a slot in my mind. What would have been interesting to see is if they move Michael Pittman inside, because there's no way you're telling me Drake London or whatever is my, better than Michael Pittman right now. And so if you move Pittman inside, and then if uh, Devin Williams was truly your fourth best receiver then move him outside and that package would have been interesting to see that's the only depth chart way that I can maybe say like okay it, it, that, that could have been the, the the angle to find uh find him reps but uh yeah at the end of the day uh th- there was guys ahead of him and he wasn't able wasn't able to get out there
0: I, I think it's a great point and, and I, I think that that's that's definitely the other side of the coin here is that when you have a guy that is good enough to play and is of that level you find a way to play him and and to appease him and and that's just the nature of the game these days with the transfer portal making everything so easy transfer is so common you know it 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 maybe runs counter to old school football mindset of of not worrying about Feelings and you know you do what's best for the team. Now, if you're managing a roster, a college football roster, not just for this year but for the big picture, you kind of have to be cognizant of the implications of not playing a guy. And we'll get into another guy here in a minute that fits that bill. But with Devin Williams, you, you're totally right. They definitely could have found a way to play him. And heck, I mean, he can play anywhere on the field. Okay, he's he's just talented enough. You make it work. But my only point in saying the previous thing was that it. In the coach's eyes, it wasn't like they were choosing between one or the other. But the way you turned it around, you could make the case that ultimately they were because they, they, they chose not to be creative and find a way to get him on the field and, and keep him happy. Um, one last point on Devin Williams. We talked to the defensive players yesterday. We didn't talk to Clay yet, so we, haven't gotten, we hadn't gotten Clay's reaction. We're rec- recording this podcast on, uh, on Thursday evening hadn't talked to clay yet but we talked to the defensive players after practice Wednesday and Hunter Eccles the outside linebacker who was close to Devin Williams uh, said that he he talked to him he tried to convince him to stay he kind of related his own experience last year of of you know feeling frustrated by his role and wanting to leave and then realizing that no this is my family you know these are my friends I, this is this is where I want to be and he was hoping to convince Devin Williams of the same thing and he said I wouldn't be surprised if he came back. I wouldn't be surprised if he left. So that's coming from a guy who knows Devin Williams is, is leaving that door open and is probably going to keep working on him to try and convince him to stay. But again, if Devin Williams is going to leave, it's in his best interest to do this very quickly if he wants to be able to play next year somewhere.
1: Yeah, and the only thing I'll add on to that, as a uh, as a former five-star recruit, big-time guy, having to sit on the bench at SC for – for, For three years and it was four almost four full years until i actually got meaningful playing time like that's hard right especially like for a guy like him that's that's a freak athlete and you know everyone back home is telling him oh why aren't you playing oh you should get out there what the heck why aren't they playing you and if he doesn't and i don't know his his support system or and whatnot but if that's the message that's constantly being fed to him by people that uh, are close to his circle and maybe there's some truth to it in terms of got to find a way to get him on the field type stuff but if that's the message he's constantly getting fed to himself and he's looking at at where he's at right now and he didn't necessarily have a huge role last year and he's not having a huge role this year well the clock's ticking and the and we'll and we i say we as that as a former player but you only get one shot at this and so i think if if maybe he's saying oh i got to get out of here and there's a little bit of a panic mode i mean we already talked about I don't know if there's a better scenario come 2020 for him, but if there's just a general uneasiness panic mode, uh, I can see how he arrived at that decision. I don't necessarily agree with it necessarily, but I think there is some elements of uh, when you look at the, this through his lens and the messages and the, the, the things that he's probably receiving, uh, it might paint this whole thing in a different light.
0: Yeah, and it's it's fair it's it's worth reiterating that we don't know everything. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know where his relationship with the coaching staff stands. All we can do is connect dots and see that this is a guy who expected to have a role, he hasn't had one, and he's reacting to that and leaving. Maybe there's more to it, maybe we'll never know. Devin Williams tweeted out Wednesday after a few hours after the news had circulated. He said, "Yeah, I I appreciate everyone who understands, and I appreciate everyone who doesn't. And I, I tried to reach out to his high school coach and get some more perspective. I didn't get a response back. So all we know is what we know. Um, let's stay on the same subject a little bit now and, and look at redshirt freshman running back Marquis Stepp. And he's another guy that if you're thinking long term and you want to avoid a repeat of this situation, maybe you want to get him some more carries this week. Step got in for four plays at the very end of the of the Stanford game. Got three carries, took it for over twenty yards, made the most of it. Was clearly running like a guy with a purpose, but didn't play in the opener after getting all all this buzz in the spring in the preseason. Running backs coach Mike Jinks told me in August when I was asking, "Has this guy earned a bigger a bigger role than maybe you expected?" And He goes, "Yeah, yeah." He goes, "I'll, I'll just put it this way: I wouldn't I wouldn't be worried about having to play him the whole game if it ever came to that." And then we don't see anything. And I, I get that Vi Malapai and Stephen Carr have been really effective. And I normally don't endorse running back by committees. I, I kind of like having guys who are hot get the ball and build build their flow. But when you have a guy that's clearly good enough to play and make an impact and the alternative is maybe another Devin Williams situation, maybe you force that issue. What do you think?
1: This reminds me exactly of the running back situation when I was a young player at SC. You had Trey Madden, Justin Davis, and Buck Allen, and at the, at that time, Buck Allen was the odd man out. Oddly enough, because he went, he was the only guy drafted, and he's uh, he's had probably the best career of all those guys. But I remember at the time it was they, they kind of rotated all three, and I remember as a the player in me was always thinking like the example I always used to my friends was if one of these guys was at Wisconsin and was the feature back there. These mm-hmm. guys would all be household names, running for tons of yards because Wisconsin at that time uh, kind of ran a one like they had one guy versus SC because they always have big recruits. They're always having to. I mean, by and large, it's kind of been the strategy for a while. You're you're rotating guys in, keeping guys happy, keeping guys that have high expectations kind of fresh and engaged in the game. And so those the scenario reminds me of, of, of kind of 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 that a little bit. I think the biggest thing when you started rolling there was. The, the 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 feeling of Marquis step what he's feeling right now is totally dependent on what the coaches have been feeding him if the coaches have been feeding him, yeah we're, we're giving you a big role yeah we expect big things this year and then it hasn't happened then he has every right to be frustrated and kind of pissed off and like yo what's going on but if the mold's been, yes, uh, yeah, Marquise, I mean, you know the deal. Like, we got Stephen Carr, we got Vi, two established guys, two older brothers. That's a hel- that's a term uh, Helton always loves to use in those meetings. Um, and it's kind of like, oh, well, like, you're going to have a, a small role, but it, it might not be as expansive, as expansive as you would like. If that's the mold, then he might be more expecting his, his time might come in years, in, in in coming years. So, to me, it's totally kind of – the mold of of how things are being handled behind the scenes. Um, But obviously, he could play at a lot of schools, but he's got two NFL running backs ahead of him, and and sometimes that happens.
0: So just to offer whatever perspective I have on on Marquis step, and I can't speak for him or his thoughts, and he's been pretty guarded this year. He he talked very briefly after the first game and clearly wasn't happy but didn't say much. So I, I don't know where his mind's at. Is But I do know in talking to him in the spring kind of about what he learned from that freshman season going through it, I was surprised when he conveyed that he expected to have a big role last year. And that's coming in as a true freshman when they had Aquacentric Ware and they had Carr and they had Malapai. It's an even deeper backfield. And coming in as a four-star guy, his mindset was, I'm going to be a factor this year. And then he wasn't. And he talked about how that was – humbling for him and he and he had to he had to learn from that well that says to me that this is a guy who sure as heck expected to have a big role in the second year yep and and again I, i'm 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 not saying that i know what he's thinking but i'm extrapolating from that conversation and those thoughts to say i don't know how patient he wants to be
1: yep i'm right with you and i think A big part of this, just to kind of piggyback on on what I said before, is I'm sure, or if I if I was the coach, I'd be making sure. If I was Jinx and I was Helton, I'd be bringing Marquise in and saying and explaining him to the deal, right? Like, I mean, we all know what's going on. Stephen Carr and Vi are absolutely balling right now. There's only so many carries to go around. They love Marquise Step. Fans love Marquis Step. They're not saying it's anything against him, but the reality is that like it might be a a wait your turn type thing. Not saying that makes anything easier on Marquis Step, but if they're communicating that with them and, and loving him up and keeping them engaged and saying and building for the long term. Uh, that that's, that's obviously the way to go because, I mean, no one wants to transfer. Transfer is a nightmare. But so if they're, if they're keeping him engaged and saying, hey, you never know. I mean, he really, he really is one injury away, especially with Vi and Steven that have had injuries in the past. Um, he's one hit away from having a big role and going from maybe yeah. pissed off to say, all right, let's go and let's make something happen.
0: No, totally. And, you know, I, I've always had kind of an old school football mentality. So I guess even a year ago, I would have taken the stance of well if a guy can't wait or show patience that's on them coaches can't be worried about that you can't be worried about hurting feelings but it's just so much a part of the reality of college football now that you have to be cognizant of it or you're going to have some major roster management issues in the big picture so I'm kind of swinging around a little bit more to where I wouldn't have felt this way a year ago now I'm saying if I'm them I'd, I'd Give him a little something early in the game. Maybe it's the fifth series, whatever. If if it's not, if they have confidence in him, and 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 they don't think that they're going to lose anything. I don't see the harm. But it's very interesting. I, I want to go back to a thing you said earlier, though. And you do have that unique perspective of coming in as as a top prospect, and and all the attention and build up you get before you even get to college. How much was was your mentality coming in, kind of? influenced by by that and and the recruiting rankings and everything you'd heard before you even played in the game yeah
1: I don't know if my mentality was like influenced by recruiting rankings but because I knew I had my pick of the litter in terms of schools and was a and and was a big recruit I was anticipating coming in and starting right away and not in like a naive delusional way but like uh all right Matt Barkley came in and started as a true freshman I'll come in and do the same I have the uh Accolades, for lack of a better term, to to back that up, I'll come in here and work my ass off and 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 and, and make it happen. Obviously, that didn't happen. I remember being crushed when uh, when Kiffin told me the news and stepping back, looking like or stepping back as an outsider, you might say, "Oh, Max, like, why were you crushed? Like, come on, you're just your true freshman year." But when you're living it and it's your one go at it, and you're saying, "Yo, I." outwork this guy and I did this and all that that kind of things and it doesn't work out it's still frustrating and all these guys I mean I, I always kind of harsh on this or yeah harsh on this point of like this is their one this is our one journey at it. us media guys and fans you kind of see recruits cycle in and out and it kind of becomes it becomes a cycle but you forget that these guys they only have this window so every year they're not playing there's part of you that feels kind of like it's a it's a wasted year and I think I know sure. for I know for me looking back one of the hardest. I shouldn't say it's the hardest things, but a difficult part is looking around the country and seeing guys that you were either recruited above or buddies with that are going and having success and playing and making a name for your, themselves while you're sitting on the bench and you're like, gosh dang it, like the the what if scenarios start working in your head and um, yep. I felt like I did a, a, I did a good job of. Kind of accepting the fact that my turn would would happen later. It's a little different animal as the quarterbacks, because as, as a quarterback, there's only one quarterback plays. But these running backs and receivers, you better bet that that those guys that they went to camps with and all that stuff that are that are getting reps around the country and in a marquee step or a Devin Williams, you know, they're they're not getting their their chance to shine. It's frustrating, and I think for a lot of these guys, their their voices back back home, not necessarily under their own roof, their family, but just community and old teachers and people just back home they start saying like ah you should be playing all that stuff because they don't really necessarily know the ins and outs of college football that starts getting in kids heads so you see it every year with every recruiting class um every true freshman comes in and expects to play some do and some have success and then when you're looking so then when you're looking at your buddies that are also playing on your team as true freshmen you're like ah that should be me all those starts all those thoughts start coming in and uh it's tough tough for sure
0: it's so true. When I covered the Florida Gators, um, Jim McElwain was the coach. And it seemed like every two or three weeks he would have a rant about the players need to stop listening to the outside voices, the outside noise. And he was talking about that very thing, about people saying you should be the guy. They're, they're screwing you over. You should, you should be the one in there. And it's a very real thing that coaches have to counter and deal with now. But you're, I'll you're point.
1: I'll add this yeah. one th- one thing in there this one point and that's to an element that SC brings it upon themselves to an extent. When I was there, um, they would send out letters to recruits showing how many true freshmen they played. Like I remember mm-hmm. when I was there, like Juju was the the hot true freshman. It was, hey, look at we played eleven true freshmen. Look at uh, uh, freshman All Americans, all things. So they're pushing to these guys. Come in and play early. Come in and play early. They're not lying to them. Like they everyone knows you gotta earn your stripes. But when yeah. these guys are getting pushed, the message, come in here and play early, we play the best available guy. All these guys are coming in here saying, All right, I'm gonna be the best guy. All right, I'm gonna ball out, I'm gonna show out. And for different guys, it clicks at different times. And so there's an element of SC brings it upon themselves, as opposed to maybe a Stanford's recruiting pitch, is come in and we'll develop you. Come in and, and be a part of, of this like d- developmental or whatever. or they, I I gather that's kind of Wisconsin's uh, MO as well when they were recruiting me. So I think guy, uh, d- schools have different pitches when it comes to that. So there's an element of SC bringing that upon themselves as well.
0: That's another great point. And I, I can't tell you how often I talk to recruits when I'm out covering recruiting, and their perspective or their expectation just kind of stuns me. Like It could be a guy be- being recruited into the, the deepest position on, on a team, and saying, oh, I expect to come in there and and uh, be a starter next year, and this and that. And in my head, I, I know like, I know you're you're really talented, but that's not going to happen. But I don't tell them that. But you know, but in, in, in their mind, nothing's going to stop them. They're going to come in and do this. And to an earlier point you made about you know every year is precious and this is your chance. It's also fair to say that, you know, even guys who are buried down the depth chart put in the same amount of work preparing for a season because they're they're trying to move up they're trying to earn that spot and when you put in a full off season and a full spring and a full summer and a a fall camp all geared to something that doesn't happen no matter what the outside expectation was for where you were going to be slotted it's still a harsh reality to you that i worked my tail off for this and i'm still stuck here so so i do sympathize i do get it it's just a tough reality in the in, in the way things are now
1: Exactly, and just to kind of finish this point out, this is one thing that SC, it's the beauty and curse of SC, is you're getting a lot of high-profile kids. I mean, we just talked about this for 20, 30 minutes. If we were doing a Washington State podcast, this would not be a topic because they're not getting the recruits, you know? And so right. that's, I mean, that, that's that's always going to be an element of SC. That's always going to be a fine line with these with the, with the Clay Helton, the head coach, of how do you monitor that? Do you always play the best guy no matter what, all the time? Or is there an element of making people happy, kind of catering to to make sure the locker room is feeling good across the board? It's a, uh, it's a fine line for sure.
0: Well, there is a, a game this week, and we should probably talk about that too. So let's <laughs> turn the focus forward to USC, now 24 in the national rankings, uh, going on the road for the first time this season to BYU this weekend. What – what is the thing you're most interested to see in this first road game, this first road test with BYU?
1: Yeah, I think it's just how the offense, uh, the offense's mentality walking into a road game, a game in which they weren't perfect. I'm not going to go there, but it was as good as you could have drawn it up a week ago in terms of how, how do you want the Stanford game to play out offensively? That was about exactly how you draw it up. So. The first time they're punched in the mouth, and uh, I misspoke at I an interview earlier this week, and I was like, oh, I'm, I want to see when they first get punched in the mouth." And I was like, oh, crap! They got punched in the mouth when their starting quarterback went down. That was a big, uh, <laughs> a, a big loss week one." Um, but so I'll be, I'll just be interested to just, just kind of follow that, right? I mean, everyone. It's crazy how the mood changes from "Oh my gosh, backup quarterback, how are we going to survive?" We're the true freshmen. To like, all right, here we go. We're we're winning the South. We're we're we, we got big aspirations. That kind of thing. So that's just first road test. If a quarter doesn't go well, if they don't get out to a hot start, if if Keaton throws a pick or two in a row, that kind of thing. Um, how do they operate there? And then I also think, by and large, uh, Stanford gave Keaton a a, a a in terms of. Pac-12, Division one football, I thought the picture they gave him was, was, was clean um, just, to, just to shoot it straight. And so if BYU is able to muddy up the picture, meaning get pressure on him, move him outside of his spot, mix up the looks a little bit, um, not that Stanford was just total bread and butter, but in I know Keaton will get harder pictures throughout the year. And so if BYU is that team to present, present him with that, How he handles that, and uh, if BYU is able to confuse him, that's what I'll be paying attention to uh, when I watch the game on Saturday.
0: No, that's a great point. And I want to go back to something that Graham Harrell said this week. You know, After he got a chance to watch the film and go back and review Keaton, we were trying to get his thoughts on on what stood out. And the big thing for him was just how Keaton kept his eyes up and kept him downfield and didn't seem phased by anything. Now, you mentioned that he didn't have a lot of trouble in, in terms of the pass rush, but Harold's point was it's something you either have or you don't. Once the bullets start flying, you either have it or you don't. It's hard to teach it into somebody. From your experience, how do you relate to that quote and his evaluation of Keaton in that regard?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I mean every. It's fair to say every quarterback SC recruits to bring into. On film in their high school, they're showing that they keep their eyes downfield. Like They they have all the tactics and whatnot. I think the biggest jump is when you get to college, after your first and second progression, is he able to get to his third and fourth and maneuver in the pocket with his eyes downfield? Or is that when he kind of maybe panics and brings his eyes down because the game is moving so fast? Uh, I've seen true freshman quarterbacks go on both sides of that. Some guys that have tra- transitioned really, really quickly, they just operate business as usual. Some guys, the game's moving so fast, they go to their first, maybe second progression, and they, uh, they, they move their eyes down. So I think Graham's point is, is spot on in terms of evaluating how quarterbacks operate as a, as a, young, as a young person, as, uh, as Clay would say. Um, but by and large, I was super impressed with Keaton. I think when you're a play caller up in the booth, evaluate your quarterback on his first start. It's almost like every call you're sitting on the edge of your seat because you don't know exactly how he'll react. You don't know if this is the one that the catastrophic mistake happens. This is the one where he doesn't recognize something and does something boneheaded. And I think, um, I mean, I don't think that never happened. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if kind of does that that change Graham Harrell at all? I don't think it will, but uh, I remember watching – when, when Graham came down from the booth last Saturday and he's sprinting on the field and he gave uh, Keaton a huge bear hug when they were running off the field. And to me, that, that bear hug symbolized a lot of emotion up in the booth in terms of just keep going. Keep going, young man. Keep going through your reads. Yeah. Don't, don't try to do too much. And then it finally, uh, he, they, they kid played a nearly perfect game. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was an awesome game for sure.
0: We don't have any proof yet that Keaton Slovis actually has a pulse and is operates on the same biometrics as the rest of us because he's been uh, the same guy throughout this, which I, I can't imagine. I'm just, I'd be on a personal roller coaster of, of being this unexpected star, this national topic of conversation all of a sudden, and m- maybe he's just really good at internalizing it or maybe what we see is is really what it is, and he's just that even-keeled. Is In general, though, is too much made about the challenge of playing on the road or your first road game as a quarterback? Is is there too much put behind that? Um,
1: No, I think it's pretty fair, Um, especially for a team like USC where every time they go on the road, they're getting the other team's best atmosphere. I guess that's the best way to put it. I mean, you go... If Cal goes on the road to Oregon State, it's not nearly the event as it is when the Trojans go to Corvallis, that kind of thing. And so, you know, BYU is going to be going bonkers. I mean, it's a great fan base already, very loyal fan base. So I think it's I think it's safe to say um, different road games are different. I remember going on the road to Penn State and they're uh, blowing air horns in your uh in your hotel it's like a out- one of those outside hotels where your your door opens to the to the outside and they're yeah. blowing air horns and they're waking you up in the middle of the night and then there's places <laughs> like Colorado where you're staying in like a freaking five star hotel and it's like you're eating money and it's like hey this is better than uh this is better than a home game kind of thing. Uh so different stadiums are different. Provo is going to be a test I think for a true freshman. It's really hard to to um to uh signal what what the sound's gonna be like i mean they they, i'm sure they're they're trying to do it in practice but it's a different animal when you're out there in real life but by and large i think keaton throughout this all he's shown to be a very self-aware person he knows kind of the ins and outs and he knows what he's what he's getting himself into and he reminds me of a kid if he goes out there and throws a pick on his first play he's gonna take it in stride He's gonna be. Yeah. He, he might be jumping all over inside, but on the outside, he'll be calm and he'll be getting his guys going. And he seems to be wired in a successful way that in in that in that regard.
0: Uh, I, I made sure to make this point in the last podcast. He is gonna make mistakes. He is gonna throw picks. It's, it's gonna happen. But you know that's not gonna change my evaluation of of his uh, potential this year. If he goes out and. Just looks like as confident as he did last week, and spreads the ball around, and and doesn't hesitate to take the shots when he sees them there. You know, even if the stat line is a little different, I, I think it's still going to be reaffirming for what the season can be, uh, for this team, and for him. Without a doubt. I mean, <laughs> that's the beauty and the curse of
1: uh, of that week two performances. That's now the bar. It's going to be hard to meet that bar every single yeah. week. Defenses are going to mix things up on them. Um, you, you just never know how things are going to play out. But uh, I think it, it showed, though, that that's the potential of this offense. I mean, I, I saw BYU's head coach get interviewed this week. I mean, he's like, yeah, we see all these passes and we see um, like kind of the headlines with this young, true freshman quarterback. But he's like, when I turn on the film, you forget how lethal USC's run game is, which they saw bits of that last week, but maybe not as much as it could be in weeks to come. So this offense has all, all the all the capabilities in the world. It's just a matter of keep
0: keep uh, keep rolling. Well, let's talk BYU for a little bit. Um, it's you know, back in the summer and the preseason when people were talking about expectations or projections for USC, there was a lot of fear for this game, and I never quite shared it because BYU struggled the last two years. They went seven and six last year. They went four and nine in twenty seventeen. They're a few years removed now from the last time they were, they were pretty good, but more to the point, they haven't been good at home these last two years. And in 2017, they went 2-4 and four at home with their only wins over Portland State and San Jose State, and they lost to UMass uh, in that bunch. I mean, the other games were Utah, Wisconsin, and Boise, uh, all tough games, but still that, that overall picture does not paint a, a terrifying home environment. Last year, they went three and four at home, three and three at home, uh, and their wins were over FCS McNe- McNeese State, Hawaii, and the Mexico State, and they lost to Utah State, Cal, and Northern Illinois. So this has not been a house of horrors in any regard. I don't necessarily see it in the way most people do as as uh, oh, oh my gosh, what a what a tough road challenge. I, maybe I'm I'm totally. Underestimating that, I I don't know. How do you view it? What What you know about this BYU team?
1: Yeah, I think all your points are are totally fair. I mean, they're not um, some of those teams. What what years were those? Like early uh, 2010, some of those BYU teams were uh, were were pretty damn good. And that's obviously not this team. But what sticks out to me, I mean, anytime you have a fan base that's super loyal, and you got a quarterback that's got a bunch of confidence, and they have a bunch of confidence in him, he's no. He's no—he's uh, he, not going to absolutely wow wow you, but he's got some juice to him. He can throw the ro- throw the rock, and he's mobile, so um, he he can make some things happen. I say both those points because if BYU gets some steam, especially against—I mean the mighty U- USC Trojans—if they get some steam, this is the type of game where they might never look back. I think they have the, that capability, but in terms of just sheer talent and what you see on film, ignoring the crowd, ignoring the road game, all that stuff. This is not necessarily a team USC should fear. Um, one thing that I uh, – when you, when you do think BYU, you think older older guys, right? You think they're great up front, yeah. um, just offensive and defensive line. At least when I think of BYU, that's kind of where I go. Um, and that's not necessarily what they've been on the defensive front, Um They've given up. I think it was like 250 yards rushing last week. Um, they got beat by Zach Moss uh, of Utah heavily in Week One as well. Granted, he might be the first first back off the board in this upcoming draft, and uh, if, if if things go according to plan for him. But uh, I bring all that all those up because it's not the stout front that we might be uh, expecting uh, when you, when you go into a BYU team, but. I envision these guys will be fired up. Um, I am fascinated to see how they defend USC. Um, I tweeted this out right after the game, but by and large, Stanford went to uh, man all, 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 all second half um, from, from, from what I saw against USC. And usually when you face the air raid, there's two schools of thought. It's pack the box and go man and just trust your DBs. Like they're not going to run on us, just trust your DBs. Or it's drop eight, Leave the box a little susceptible and trust your D line that they can cause enough havoc where the where the running doesn't absolutely gash you. And so if you're watching that Stanford film, you're saying, "All right, we can't run man because Stanford has an NFL corner on one side and they got absolutely gashed by this USC defense." So the other the other strategy is we got to drop eight. We got to we got to drop more guys into coverage. We got to force this young true freshman quarterback to really really dice dice us with his arm, and we're gonna. We're going to force this running game to, to see what they can do. That strategy is probably not going to be successful either when you talk about Vi and Steven in the backfield. So it's kind of a, on the surface, before this game even starts, it's kind of a lose-lose um, for this BYU defense. I'm fascinated to see how they approach this game.
0: That's really interesting. I, I, I hadn't even thought of it that way. But, but, but yeah, if, if Stanford couldn't do it with Adebo out there, then it would be hard to go back to that same approach for BYU – and if USC is having the same drawing the same conclusion and preparing for the the alternative, that they're going to be ready to counter that too.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. That that's that's hence why I tweeted it. Hence why I bring it up now. I, I think it's genuinely if you're a an X's and O's nut, and if you're watching this, uh, if, or if you're listening to this podcast, you're, you're probably locked in. Pay attention to that because I think that the the answer if I'm BYU is. The fact that I'm able to jump back and forth between those schemes, I think the answer is they're going to have to mix it up. They're going to have to change what they do each drive, each quarter, each play. Might be exaggerating, but they need to keep Graham on his toes, keep him guessing, keep Keaton guessing. Is that can they find a blitzing scheme and maybe press pressure this offensive line of USC? Because offensive line's been great so far, but it was only three weeks ago we were chatting and, and, and maybe uh, and, and maybe questioning kind of where they're at. So. They gotta find a way to get pressure on him. If pressure's not the answer, they just gotta mix up the picture and keep Graham guessing with his play calls. But it's tough. There's a reason these air raid offenses put up all these points because even if they mix it up on Graham, when you have five receivers go out, those are five answers for every one of the coverages or blitzes that you could ha- that you could draw up. And then at that point, it's on Keaton to just play point guard and recognize what he's seeing and just get the ball out of his hands.
0: Yeah. For those who haven't been following BYU this season, they're one on one. They they lost thirty to twelve to Utah. And then they they sneak past Tennessee and you know people who aren't plugged into college football this year might think, oh wow, that's a big win for them. Uh, Tennessee's really bad. Tennessee is <laughs> still still at the foundation of a rebuilding project. I'm not I'm not saying that Jeremy Pruitt can't get this thing figured out, but right now they've they're off to a, a Two 0-2 start star that has their fan base uh, uh, fearing the worst about the direction of this program. So I don't take a whole lot away from that win. I want to ask you, though, about their BYU's quarterback, Zach Wilson. Um, what have you seen from him w- when you watch him, and, and what should the USC defense be most aware of?
1: Yeah, when I see Zach Wilson, I think uh, I see a confident kid. And I genuinely mean confident and not cocky. I'm not going to go that far. But he's a guy that's going to uh, – He's rocking the headband. He's running around. He's 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 getting guys fired up, kind of thing. And um, it's a guy that uh, <laughs> that the, uh, the 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 broadcast week one mentioned that the fact that he graduated early. I think it was, and brought like two BYU cheerleaders to his prom or something like that. So <laughs> it gives you a gauge of kind of the moxie of this kid. Um, but I think. Outside of maybe that being a little like fluff or whatever, the real side is this staff has a lot of confidence in him, and this team has a lot of confidence in him. I see a guy that um, he doesn't wow me with his arm. Um, He's a guy that can make throws, but he doesn't wow me with his arm. I think what's what makes him useful is on those third and eights, third and ten, when it's a defense, an advantageous scenario for the defense. He does have the ability to escape, to do a little uh, Jorge Reyna uh, for a uh, Fresno State reference in terms of uh, maneuvering the pocket, get out, uh, find, like scramble, and kind of just play some backyard ball. That's, he does have an element of that, which um, that's probably his most impressive quality, and, and that goes with a little bit of mobility, so you got to be aware of his legs. But I think he's just a solid quarterback. He's a guy you got to prep for. He's a guy you got to uh, pay attention to, but by no means uh, is he – some daunting guy that the Trojan secondary has to gear up for
0: he's a this is his second year really uh, of action he got in last year passed for 1578 yards 12 Tds three interceptions and and like you said he rushed for 221 yards so he is mobile but he wasn't the main guy all last season so far this year he's thrown for 440 over two games with one touchdown and two interceptions. If if you're BYU and you saw what Jorge Reyna did, are you maybe building some more of that into the game plan for Zach Wilson?
1: Yeah, I think you'd like to as an offensive coordinator, but I'm not so. I don't know how you how you purposely do that. I think a lot of that's just kind of the flow of the game, the innate ability of a Jorge Reyna or in this case Zach Wilson, just kind of creating on his own. Um, so I, I don't think you really can create that as a quarterback. Maybe you do some more rollouts and try to get him on the move. That's probably a good. Uh, a good strategy in terms of play action: get Drake Jackson and Christian Rector running, um, get a, or whoever's at that defense end spot, just get them moving, get them tired. Uh, but by and large, I think that's just a, the nature of Zach Wilson or Jorge Reyna and kind of what they bring to the table.
0: Well, let's. So we we talked before the season about expectations, predictions, and we talked after JT's injury and before Keaton start about whether we were going to shift those expectations. I held firm with my, my eight-win projection for the regular season. You adjusted by a couple games from nine to seven. Now seeing Keaton Slovis, do you adjust yeah. back or where
1: you at? You're teeing yourself up here, uh, but no, I don't blame you. I, I think you're right with this one. Um, I jumped the gun too early. Shout out to you. Uh, you you, you held, held true to your guns. Um, I'll go back. I started at nine wins. I adjusted to seven when JT went down. I'll go back to I'll go back to nine. Um, I think they get it done here and that puts them at three wins. And then you got uh, Utah, Washington, and Notre Dame ahead. Now Washington looks a little bit better having lost to Cal. I still think they're a great team, but I think I mean I think Cal snuck up on them or however you want to word it. Utah and Notre Dame are gonna be awfully tough. But then from there, I, I think there's a scenario where they get nine wins. I love the way this offense is rolling. Um the two question marks that we had kind of offensive line and cornerback in the beginning of the year those are looking pretty solid so I'm uh I'm putting the tail whatever the term is tail tail between my legs and, and walking back <laughs> walking back to 91s
0: I I'm sure a lot of people are uh adjusting things after last week Uh you got you got to pick up you got to pick up the well, you know, uh, before or, I do that I I I'm going to actually acknowledge that you know I went 8 and 4 just because I actually believed in a higher ceiling, but I was so balanced out by everyone else's abject uh, pessimism. And I actually wish that I had gone 9 and 3 to start the year. That's kind of, I was between the two of them, and I thought, oh, I, just, I should probably keep it in check. But I'm, I'm kind of with you there. So, so maybe I'll say I'm adjusting too, but I, I think that's what this team can do.
1: Yeah, and as you say that,
0: I may have said eight
1: two. I gotta go. I gotta. I gotta check the records. I thought it was a two win. No, I think it was. Oh, yeah, it was nine. I said two less wins, and I think I dropped it down to seven. But uh, whatever. In that ballpark. Uh, it, yeah, but I, the, the, there's the town on the team to win double digits. We all know that, but uh, we shall see.
0: Well, let's talk predictions for this week. Uh, do you have a score prediction? Score prediction. I know, I know put you on, on the spot every time.
1: No, you're good. I, I got to start uh, coming prepared for that one. Um, I'll go. I think USC is going to get it done. I think they're going to d- get it done. Uh, I'll say handedly too. I'll say. Uh, I don't know how good BYU's kicker is. That might be the uh, the, the deciding <laughs> factor. But I'll go uh, 14 for BYU, and I'll go uh, I'll go 31 for SC. I think they'll uh, just human nature. I think they'll slow up a little bit. Um, but they're going to put up points I, I expect the run game to kind of take off this game uh, Just because if I'm BYU I saw what happened last week And I'm probably leaning more towards the pass this week Uh but once again, I think anytime you're starting a true freshman quarterback, if he can limit the turnovers, that, BYU's recipe for the game. I was just talking with Tanner Mangum, their quarterback uh, from last year. He hit me up because he was going on BYU's radio stuff, and he's like, yo, what, what, what do I got to know? And the recipe yeah. for BYU to win this game is create turnovers and find a way to get big plays on this USC secondary because they've been tested, but not really. I mean, you talk about Fresno State it's fresno state solid but nothing groundbreaking stanford backup quarterback different scheme byu can they add a different element and maybe test this secondary in a ways that we haven't seen i think the secondary is totally solid for sc at this point but that's going to be byu's recipe for success is get it, try to get a few big plays but i'll go 31 14 usc
0: we're, we're very close here I, I had this written down before you said anything but I, i'm at 34 17 and okay. So I'm, just, I'm just gonna I'm, I'm just gonna put it on the record in case I, my my gut feels at 3419, but that's kind of a funky score that requires some weird things to happen. So I'm gonna stay officially 3417. Uh, I just believe in this offense. I think it's gonna be consistent every week in terms of output. And I'm not super high on BYU. I'm not putting a lot of stock in the in the home field advantage aspect. And I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I think it's gonna be a, pretty convincing victory but we'll see it is the first road game maybe maybe I'm just totally underrating that and I'll be surprised but that's where I stand right now wait so, so uh
1: wait talk to- tell me this uh one thing so with 19 are you expecting some goofy true freshman safety as a result of Keaton Slovis's play is that how you're getting 19 or uh have you got that far
0: I I didn't pin it on <laughs> Keaton. I, I was I was more thinking of like a missed extra point and then two field goals. Gotcha. But, okay. Okay. But, but but something funky. But yeah, you know when you just have like you just have a, a gut feel like a number just comes to your head. That's what it was for me. But I I acknowledge that's probably unlikely. So I'm I'm straddling the line here. I want that on the record. <laughs> I also want to go with the more traditional score of thirty four seventeen. I'll uh, I'll remember it in case it happens. We didn't talk a ton about USC's defense. I mean, is there anything else? and Any other storylines that really stand out to you about this game?
1: Um, yeah, I think. I mean, you mentioned defensively. I think one guy that's in a few headlines here, or there. I was talking about him in the post game show a little bit. Is just EA. I mean, at the, the the interior linebacker spot, it sounds like. I mean, you got John Houston like playing solid. It, it feels like, but some guys are. The, the murmurs, I guess you could kind of say, are, are starting to rise a little bit of like, all right, what's the best way to use such a talented linebacker in EA? Like, is it is it at his true position? Is it just a matter of time of him getting kind of used to things? Is it more of rushing off the edge? Like, what's going on? And not that he's playing bad. I'm not going that far. But when the ceiling's so hot, high for a guy like that, and maybe there's a few plays in there that you're kind of like, ah, he probably should be there. Or why is he not there? Or why haven't we heard more of him might be the the, the, the mold you're seeing? I'm fascinated to see how he adjusts and maybe getting on the road and getting away from home or however you want to word that it allows for for a kind of mental reset for him and i once again i'm not saying he's playing bad but just that's the storyline that that i've been paying attention to a little bit and then um greg johnson coming out coming with a, a pick last week does that i know he was a guy that was kind of battling all off season and i know firsthand kind of Maybe sometimes that wears on guys a little bit, and it's kind of he's uh, he, every practice feels like a game kind of thing, and he gets out there, has some success. Does that maybe free him up? Does he maybe take the next step? Um, those are two guys that, that stick out to me. But by and large, I think it's business as usual for this defense.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's going to be an ongoing referendum on that middle linebacker spot with John Houston, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see EA back there at some point this season. A play that comes to mind from the Stanford game was, I think it was in the th- third quarter. I, it was a, it was their 44-yard run. It was a very well-blocked play up front where they managed to get double teams on both Marlon Tuiplotu and Jay Tufeli and kind of clear out the A-gap. And in theory, both those defensive tackles were doing their job as they were eating up two blockers each, and the linebacker should have had a free path right there to make the stop. But John Houston had already shot the B gap and was uh, taking himself out of the play, and so Stanford's running back Scarlet just had a, a wide lane for a 44-yard gain, and that's just one play. And I, you know everyone has a bad play, but I, I still need to see a lot more to buy into that being the right arrangement for those linebackers.
1: I'll say this: I'm. Whenever I did my film breakdowns last year, I did one this week. If you haven't checked it out, it's on my. Uh, on my twitter but uh i'm always wary when i do these film breakdowns of like you never know exactly how they're supposed to fit that same play i watched the same thing and was trying to pinpoint who was wrong because sometimes you can point it out and i forget who the defensive tackle was at that time on ea's side but they both went to the b gap on the stanford's left side and so i and and then whether that's there, one's going to the B-gap, one's going to the C-gap on that side, and then John Houston's supposed to fulfill on the A-gap on that side, not to nerd out crazy, but whatever. Moral of the story is I'm, try- I never, I'm always wary of sometimes you don't know exactly who's supposed to fit Fair. in that A-gap. Is that defensive tackle instead of fitting on the on the left side of the Stanford's uh, tack on, on offensive lineman helmet? Was he supposed to fit on the right-hand side, and that's what the linebacker was expecting, all those kind of things? Because it's those little nuances that – Stanford expects you to mess up on at some point in the game. And then that's how they break their big runs. So fair point. Someone messed up. Could have been John Houston. But I only bring that up because I I wasn't totally sure who was at fault on that one.
0: It's a good disclaimer because not knowing the play and the responsibilities, you are making some level of of presumption or assumption there. So you know what? We'll see how he plays this week. And we'll give him a fair fair shake and review uh, next podcast.
1: Hey, I like it. That's, that's the beauty of uh, coming on twice a week. We uh, get to uh, rehash things from from weeks before.
0: Yeah, for, for those who are just joining in, uh, Max is with us every Tuesday and Friday on the Church and Talk podcast and on the message board every Thursday night for an hour doing a live chat with our subscribers. So sign up, get your questions answered, get his perspective on anything you want. As always, good times, Max. Have us fun. It was great, Ryan. Um, yep, see you next week.